navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Welcome to this episode of the Mentor ESQ podcast. Uh, I'm really excited for this episode. It's going to be a very different episode. Uh, We're not going to talk trial skills in this episode, and uh, we're not going to talk too much about law, uh, but we'll touch on it. And today's episode, as you might have gathered from the title, involves cars, car racing. And uh, some of you may know, but most of you probably don't, that uh, I've been a big sports car fan uh, for most of my life. Uh, I was a kid growing up, always just enjoyed cars. And uh, when I was in high school, uh, my senior year was 1989. And I have this philosophy that for uh, people that really enjoy sports cars, they always want what the hot sports car was when they were like a junior or senior in high school. And uh, back then, I always liked Ferraris and I liked Porsches. And uh, in the late 80s, Porsches had really cool 911s. The 911s are always cool, but it was the sort of the classic 911 with the big whale tail and all that. And I always wanted one. And uh, 10 years later, 1999, I had my first big verdict. And I won a verdict in a dental malpractice case. I got a $750,000 verdict. Uh, The jury actually came in with exactly what I asked for. And the case wasn't worth that much. Uh, My client had a bad dental procedure and had a bit of a numb lip, uh, but I did a pretty nice job in trying the case. And so we ended up settling the case, I think, for probably around $300,000. And what I did with my share of that fee, I said, that's it. I'm a player now. I won a big verdict in Manhattan. I'm new on the scene. And uh, I'm going to get myself the car I've always wanted. So I went online. I researched. I researched. And, of course, I looked for a 1989 911. And uh, finally, I found it. And uh, I got one. It was a white 1989 911 Targa, which is a convertible top that it's a hard top, comes off and goes back on. And I found it in Philadelphia. I bought it then for about $29,000. And uh, that was now, uh, what, uh, 22 years ago. And uh, I still have that car. And that is my baby. And I've taken care of it and given it lots of love and attention and really gotten into Porsche and uh, even have taken that car out on the track. So that's how my love started. And um And it's progressed from there to the point where I've gotten into high performance driving and something known as sim racing, which is uh, driving in a simulator. And I've had the pleasure of meeting our guest today uh, by way of getting involved with the Porsche Club in sim racing. And it just so happens, not only is he an amazing uh, race car driver, uh, but he's a lawyer as well. And I thought it would just be great to combine my love of cars uh, with uh, the law and have our next guest. And I welcome him now. Uh, Chris Pays, thank you for coming uh, to be a guest on the Mentor Podcast. Oh, not a problem. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I do appreciate it. And I share the same, you know, passion for cars that you've always had. And, you know, for, for your 19 or yeah, your 1989 911 uh, is my, I have a 2016 uh, GT4 
that I ordered brand new from Porsche. It's not quite 22 years ago, but I guess it'll be there one day, but, um, <laughs> that's, that's mine. I've had it since new. I ordered, I waited for it. You know, I, I checked every box. It's a little, it's got some quirky features that many people, you know, did not check and it's mine and it's got all those features and it's, I've had it and I don't think I'll ever sell it. Uh, so I've, <laughs> I share the exact same uh, passion that you have and kind of the same quirkiness. Was that your first Porsche? No, I actually, my first Porsche was a 2005 uh, 911 Carrera S that I got my senior year in law school. Um, I bought it in 20, it would have been 2012, 2013. Um, it was a 2005, so it'd been around seven years or so, but it only had 7,000 miles on it. Um, wow. So whoever owned it before just parked it. Like I think it did 1,200 miles a year. Uh, and you know, I was, I had been looking for a year, you know, how the search is for these fancy cars is they, uh, that search is half the fun. Right. And yeah. so I was scouring everywhere, looking nationally. I was, I didn't mind if it was in California, I'd have it shipped if it was the right one. And it just so happened it was an eBay seller, uh, that was selling the car 30 minutes away from, I, I at the time I was in, uh, in Philadelphia at Villanova and it was 20 minutes North of school. And so I was able to drive up there, take a look at it and say, yeah, this is the one. And the next thing I knew, I was driving around a 911. <laughs> All you should have seen all my classmates who were like, why is he in a 911? Like, wow, that? did he get an uh, early offer, a big law firm? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, it's funny because I see, I I was a little bit on the, the weird side. Uh, I, I got my JD MBA at the same time, but I worked for a while before I went back to school. So I was one of the older ones in my class. Um, but, um, you know, so every, all my friends were, you know, seven years younger than me <laughs> at the time. And, uh, so when I started showing up in the nine 11, you know, there were whispers, but you know, they, I think they understood <laughs> that I was okay. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, I went to law school, Brooklyn law school. Nobody drove because it's in downtown yeah. Brooklyn. You take the train. So no one sees on what you drive. And even if you had a nine 11, I don't know where you'd park it or feel comfortable parking. <laughs> So, That's what I learned that real quick. Cause I'm from, I'm a Texas boy. I'm from Houston originally. And we've got space here. That's for sure. Uh, Philadelphia is tight in terms yeah. of space. <laughs> and I just remember driving that. I drove that car in the winter and the snow and yeah, there were some tight spaces, but uh, made it through all of them. So did you, when did you first find an attraction to sports cars? Uh, and was that, um, you know, some people are attracted to the looks of cars. That always attracted me originally. I just love the beauty of the sports cars and the sounds and uh, the whole feeling of them and the aura. Uh, some people are very technical and just love, you know, working on engines and suspensions. And, and I'm not handy that way at all. I, I wouldn't risk anyone's life getting in a car that I would attempt to work on. Yeah. Uh, and some want to do it to compete. They start off, as you know, in racing. Uh, driving go-karts and working their way up. Um, where did you start uh, and at what age getting into cars and why? I, you know, probably my parents. I, the, some of the earliest member, memories I ever remember um, were sitting with my parents as, I mean, I'm, I must've been four years old. I don't know. As early as people can actually remember being a kid, um, having little matchbox cars. And I would go around everywhere. It didn't matter where it was. I'd have a matchbox car in each hand, little me. And it'd be restaurants, anywhere. And I can remember 
sitting at a restaurant, multiple restaurants with my parents waiting on our food. And I would take the little sweet and low packets uh, that would be stuffed, you know, for coffee over there in the side. And I would make a track, like an actual racing track with them. And those would be the curbings. And I would take my little matchbox cars and I would, you know, drive them around. And for me, it was that sense of something about cars. I mean, obviously the way they look is important. The way they sound is important. But that idea that, you know, here's a, here's a human, here's man that can go jump in a mechanical device of some sort and basically drive or, or, or compete or do something beyond what they would be able to do without it, right? Uh, like uh, piloting a jet or something like that and doing aerobatics, but on the ground. And that idea just fascinated me as a little kid. And um, so much so is when I grew up, I grew up with PlayStations and stuff like that. And what really kind of sealed the deal for racing and just competition on that type of scale which was uh, Gran Turismo. Uh, the original Gran Turismo 1 and Gran Turismo 2. I spent hours and hours and hours of my childhood uh, playing those games and racing those games. And it had always been a dream of mine to be able to do that in real life. I just never knew how. Um, and in fact, when I was younger, the sport I competed in was golf. I played in college from my school, my university. Um, so I never really got into the racing thing until frankly, after law school is when I kind of started getting back into it, the whole car thing and driving on tracks and such. Um, but I always wanted to do it. And in fact, there's a picture of myself in, I want to say second grade, during a Halloween event and I am dressed up as a race car driver and that basically just that uh, was a foreshadowing for the rest of my existence, I guess. Cause at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't know if you share the same kind of approach but for me, me being a lawyer or me working uh, and being a professional is a way for me to get behind the wheel of a race car. Uh, and so I treat it as such, um, you know, where some people maybe have sponsors that are supporting them to go race I view myself as in my job as my sponsorship to enable me to race. So that's what, uh, that's where I really get my passions from. Um, maybe one day I'll be able to meld the two where I'm actually working and doing the same thing as the passion. Uh, it's just not there yet. Um, but hopefully sometime in the future, I, that'll, that'll come along. So give us an idea of how much time you spend, uh, behind the wheel in some type of competitive, situation and whether that is in sim racing which we'll talk about or in uh irl i think is the phrase in real life uh racing yeah yeah so i usually average right now the racing i do is endurance racing so multiple hour events i've got a team of multiple drivers uh the car goes around for eight hours let's say but we'll have four different drivers that will make switches during pit stops but I'll get behind the wheel of a car in real life in one of those events, maybe five weekends out of the year. Uh, it's not a lot. Um, and during those weekends, I'll probably be driving eight hours during those weekends. So, you know, during the weekends, it's a lot of intense activity and honing of the craft. And then I'll go a month and a half with nothing type of thing. So I really cherish those moments that I can't get behind the wheel of the car. Um, but that's one of the great things that is sim racing is, you know, any given evening you in five minutes you can be in brazil racing at uh at the track down there in, in sao paulo that formula one races at or in the next 10 minutes you could be racing at a spa in belgium you know and in different cars uh that's just unheard of um so can you explain can you explain what sim racing is because um it's a phrase that's thrown around a lot and for people who know it 
but a lot of people have no idea when they hear the phrase sim racing. What is that? Can anybody do it? Is it a video game? Can you explain really uh, what it is, sort of how it came about and, and at what level it's used now and by whom? Yeah, absolutely. So sim racing is, you know, we've got what maybe people, lay people would think that are, aren't actively racing or in the community may think of a racing video game. You know, in the, the Gran Turismo's that I mentioned before on the PlayStation, these are definitely racing video games. You know, it's a video game and you race in it. Um, sim racing is the next level off of that. Uh, and basically what it's the goal is, is the program itself is trying to create a simulated environment that is simulating the, the characteristics and dynamics of a race car on a racetrack. And in sim racing games, if I want to call it that, and maybe to put them both together, um, you've got different degrees of how of the quality of simulation. Um, maybe lower end simulator games or video game, more on the video game scale, uh, would be what we call an arcade type game. You know, something where you've got crazy physics, cars doing jumps, doing flips, stuff like that. That's an arcade based game. And then on the other, extreme, you've got things like iRacing, uh, which are trying, their goal is to simulate the most accurate representation of what it is for a vehicle to go around a real life racetrack. All of their cars are detailed and developed uh, by software engineers and car engineers, frankly, uh, to create the most authentic modeled vehicle possible. And then the tracks themselves are laser scanned with in millimeters of precision to recreate every bump and every curve and everything. And then when you meld the two together, you get an authentic simulated experience of what it's like to drive that car on that track. Um, so that's what sim racing is, is that authentic driving experience of driving any given car on a track. On top of that, you've got competition. Um, so in those arcade games that I referenced before, you can have uh, a competitive league or something that where drivers are competing against each other, but they're competing within the rules of that, of that piece of software. iRacing has the same thing. They've got leagues and other things that are used for their simulation. Um, and what we've been talking about, you and I, Andrew, is the, um, the iRacing type simulation and the league is the PCA league that we've, that's how we met, uh, where we are racing against other drivers all of, well, for us, it's all around the country. Um, but if you're racing and I racing in general, you're racing against people all around the world at any given time of day, uh, at any of these tracks and any of these cars. And there's always somebody to race against and have that experience of wheel to wheel competition from the comfort of your home, which is just phenomenal. In my opinion, <laughs> it's amazing. It really is amazing. And, um, and, for people listening, uh, they're not seeing my backdrop. Uh, usually I have my studio backdrop on uh, today. I have my sim backdrop. And uh, if you go to the website at thementor.com, you can see a video of Chris and I chatting and you'll see my backdrop, which is actually my setup. And you can see that it's actually, it looks, you know, there's a, there's the car, the, uh, the, uh, the, the seat and the steering wheel and the three screens and uh, the pedals, you got a clutch, you got a, a shifter and uh, it really simulates uh, the feel of it. And um, 
Chris was kind enough when I first joined Porsche Club of America, that's PCA, uh, PCA Sim Racing, uh, you have to be a member of the Porsche Club. So uh, you're in a group with uh, like-minded individuals that are uh, friendly with each other because they're, you know, they're not strangers like the, the whole world that can enter online in other races. And uh, everyone's really helpful. And Chris uh, was kind enough to um, reach out to me and offer me some instruction and guidance. And what we were able to do and what you're able to do through sim racing is you have your headphones on, you're connected to the internet, and I'm sitting in my uh, sim racing uh, setup with my wheel and my headphones on. And Chris and I were alone on a track and uh, in a car and you're able to hop in and out of each other's cars through the technology and talk to each other, learn the track, drive the track. And so not only is it just super cool to be able to do that uh, and you're in the comfort of your own home, or in my case, garage, where I have it set up, but um, it's a great way to interact. And especially during these pandemic times, uh, I've developed quite a nice group of individuals I get to spend uh, several nights a week with uh, in my sim racing uh, rig with my headset on and getting to know each other and racing and learning and practicing. And I find that camaraderie to be really quite amazing and not easy to find in other aspects of life these days. Yeah. And that was one of the, one of the things that's really picked up with sim racing, especially in 2020. Um, you know, while a lot of things were terrible about last year and, and continue to be uh, with the whole pandemic and all of that. One thing it did do, it did really good things for sim racing because as professional racing series in real life shut down because we couldn't have events in public we couldn't have fans watching or anything like that um professional racing events and leagues started going to the virtual world and nascar which everybody's familiar with that organization actually hosted professional nascar races in iRacing and you had the pro nascar drivers in their own rigs at home all connected and had a virtual race and it drew a lot of attention to sim racing and it kind of blurred the line between, well, what is real racing and what is sim racing? The competition is real, regardless if it's in a virtual world or it's a real world. Um, the only difference is cost, frankly. <laughs> uh, it's very expensive to run these things in real life and to be able to and just do it. Too. Oh, yeah. And safety. Nobody's going to get hurt if you crash in the sim. Um, you can use data analysis uh, in real life. That's the same uh, developers of the data software packages and the, the, the software that can read the data are the exact same programs that you can use in SIM as well. It reads both real car data and simulated car data because that's all it is to it is ones and zeros. So the ability to be able to hone your craft at a fraction of the cost on any given night is just, it's invaluable. And it's something that, I mean, iRacing has been around for a while. Simulators have been around for a while, but the technology is really starting to catch up to where it's, it's, it's blurring the lines. It's, it's doing, it's doing some pretty neat stuff. So you, your legal background, you have an impressive background, you have a JD, you have an MBA, uh, you handle big transactional stuff. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're a serious attorney and, um, you're into cars and car racing. Um, similarly, uh, I, I'm involved in the law, uh, and I'm into, you know, cars and car racing. Um, obviously, there are many lawyers that have Porsches or fancy cars, and probably most of them are posers and just do it because it's a way to spend money and they like to be flashy. Uh, we all see plenty of those. But then there's a group of people like us 
that could care if nobody else sees us ever in a car. Um, we like Porsches for the types of cars they are. We can talk about that. But um, I also wonder if there's some connection between being an attorney um, and being interested in high-performance vehicles and cars and whether or not, you know, through law school and the work we do, it's very analytical. We have to analyze cases, uh, contracts, language, situations. As a trial lawyer, it's a lot of um, chess. It's a constant chess match in litigation. And I see a lot of similarities of that with racing. Um, you know, I've heard you lecture, as I lecture in the law quite a bit, uh, you lecture and uh, in the area of car racing. And I, that's yeah. when I first reached out to you. I said, wow, this guy really explained this stuff, which is really technical, and you made it very easy to understand. Since you're so submerged in this world, have you met other attorneys that are into racing? And do you think that there is some reason that people that are trained to be attorneys find themselves uh, gravitated to um, sports cars and high-performance driving? There, there, there are definitely a few attorneys. Now, whether if it's attorneys racing because there's a connection in terms of the way the mind works, or if it's because they tend to have more disposable income than the average Joe, I don't know. I, there's a lot of there's a lot of doctors and attorneys that are in the racing world. Uh, in addition, it seems to be it seems to be either like you know fifty to sixty year old um, professionals that have retired and are now you know living out the dream, or like eighteen year olds who have you know just as much money because either the family or they've got sponsorships because they've got real skill, and, and that seems to be at the outer edges. I'm actually one of the minorities, which is like you know mid thirties doing it on my own type of thing. Um, but no, there's definitely, you know, as, as you mentioned before, in the, maybe some of the talks that I've had with some of the racing stuff, just a little info on me, on the, the practice that I have, I'm in-house counsel for a company called Consberg Maritime. Uh, we sell big commercial marine equipment. So think thrusters, propellers, deck machineries, winches, the stuff, the size of your house that goes on tankers and, you know, towboats and all sorts of offshore platforms, all that kind of stuff, just huge, heavy equipment, stuff that if something goes wrong, people tend to get hurt. Um, that's what I do for a living is what I go in and I negotiate the equipment contracts, the service contracts, all the other random types of contracts that may come up, the technology contracts, uh, in order for my company to do business and sell these multi-million dollar pieces of equipment to these huge companies, these offshore drillers, these, um, you know, tankers, these tugboat companies, anything, anybody that's willing to buy them, frankly. Um, and there's a lot of things I have to be aware of and think of to try to minimize the risk for my company. So while you, Andrew, are a trial lawyer and you're, you know, you've got the other side uh, that you are trying to um, basically defeat in order to come out uh, to be a, a zealous advocate for your, for your client. Yeah. Um, my approach tends to be, Hey, we're going to be working together. Let's try to find an agreement so we can part as friends and be happy as opposed to I'm going to win everything. And if I win everything you lose type of thing. Um, so it's a little bit of a different approach, um, but there's a lot of teamwork between your opponent and you. Um, and I can take that to racing in the sense that especially endurance racing, and that's maybe why I'm attracted to endurance racing is it's a lot of give and take. Um, you know, on lap one of an eight hour race, I can't win the race, but I could definitely lose it. So I need to work with the folks that are around me, even though they're my competitors 
try to make it so we can go as fast as we can to maybe drive away from the rest of the field. Uh, and then later on, when I get a feel for how they're driving and where I can get my advantages, then I pounce. Uh, and that's probably similar to what I do in, in real life as well. You know, I work with work with our, our customers, see what risks they, they need to mitigate. I know what risks I need to mitigate and basically propose a solution that meets their requirements uh, while knowing full well what I need to do and what I can do to minimize my company's risks and make that proposal. They're like, hey, that's fantastic. That helps us what we're doing. And when the whole idea is I'm, yeah, I've minimized my risk and more because I know what their level is type of thing. So similar kind of idea, I guess. I don't know. That's a little bit of a round way of kind of describing it. Hopefully that made sense. <laughs> yeah, it definitely makes sense because, you know, before I got into some of the high performance driving and really learn, and I'm still clearly uh, learning a lot about what's involved in racing, uh, especially spending, you know, several hours each week in the simulator racing with people like yourself who are at the pro level and I'm at the rookie level now, um, is what's involved. And it's it's hard. And there's a lot that's involved. As a layperson, you turn on a race and you see people are big NASCAR fans and it's huge and people are into Formula One. And some people may say, what's the big deal? It's like people just going fast around a track and wow, you know, Danica Patrick, it's cool. She's a woman, she drives fast. So, you know, if you can drive fast, you can be a professional car racer. And it's just not the case. There's a reason that people are going fast because there's weight balance, there's, you know, speed, there's when you brake, when you accelerate, uh, how you handle situations. Um, you have to be on point and be so focused. I find even in the sim racing we're doing that for a moment, if someone talks in my ear and I lose focus for a, a, a fraction, I'm off the track and I'm like, what just happened? So I guess, do you find that the, the people that are at the top in racing, uh, whether it's sim or real life, um, are usually on the higher scale of intellect are usually pretty bright people uh, and that you have to have a certain high level of, uh, of intellect to really get it? Yeah, there's definitely a, a base level. Um, at least there are people with inherent talent, in my opinion, um, that for some reason you put a round thing in their hand and things that they got to push with their feet and they can go quickly, right? But where that would probably get most people buy, I'd say maybe 20 years ago in racing, that's not the case anymore. Um, everybody that's competing, at least professionally, and I'm not a professional, I'm definitely an amateur, uh, but those that are doing it and getting paid to do it, in order for them to maximize it and be better to, relative to their competitors, they need to take the next step. They have the talent. Every single one of them has the talent. But in order to get that edge and that uh, over their competition, they got to go into the analytics because what we say is data don't lie. Uh, it just does not lie. You may say, hey, I'm breaking at the, a certain point going into a corner every time. But then when you pull up the data, you find out that you're three feet early and we're talking that far, right? Um, yeah, that's three feet that you could go fast. You could go, uh, you know, five hundredths faster that lap if you broke three feet later, type of thing. Because if you're not doing that and you're not looking at the data, your competition is, and they're just as talented at you. So to bridge that to the legal side of things, right? It's the same kind of concept. You may have an an an, an um, concept of the law. You may know things forwards and backwards. You may know everything there is to know about. Um, tort products liability, right? 
But if you don't go that extra effort and research and look at the most recent cases to see if there's any holes in your argument, right? Guess what? Your opponent on the other side is going to be doing that. And when it comes time to actually perform, you've got, you know, the law, but you don't know of that one case. And maybe it's because you didn't spend that extra time to find out that one thing. And those are the things that time tend to come up and bite you, right? It's the same thing in racing. The, the guy that's putting in all the effort and doing all the work he can, even on an analytical scale, is the one that's going to tends to come out on top. Um, and and what's when you look at racing, and I'm the same way. If I'm watching racing a lot uh, on TV, it, it's boring. You know, it's just cars going around in circles, right? But the driver that's behind the car is taking this two-ton vehicle, or well, they're usually not two tons, so a ton and a half vehicle of metal, and they are lap after lap hitting the exact, I have poker chip in my hand, hitting that point every single time on a racetrack, lap after lap for hours and hours, that there's there's skill involved. And it just takes, it's just an inane talent that you've got to have at least to begin with. Um, but then the, the analytics go on top of that. And you have to have that intellect to be able to understand what squiggly lines and graphs mean when you're looking at the data. That's amazing to me. And I never knew that. And I'm still learning. And just, you know, for you to say that they're hitting a mark the size of a poker chip in a car going, you know, over 100 miles an hour each time consistently, um, I never realized that it's a matter of inches really makes a difference uh, in these races. Yeah. When we, um, when we do uh, instructing in real life, you know, uh, with the PCA, and we get a student who's, you know, a green student or something like that. And we'll be driving and I'll be riding in the right seat and we'll go around. A... You're an instructor. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So all an instructor means is that uh, if say you're a member of the Porsche club and all, a lot of car clubs, BMW has their own car club as well. And there's usually a Corvette club as well. Um, but um, high performance driving events are the weekends that you could take your sports car uh, or sometimes people bring their SUVs uh, like a Porsche Cayenne to the track with the Porsche club, for example. And if you're new to the track or you're a beginner, you've only done it once before, you'll get paired up with a driving instructor uh, like me. So I would be riding in the right seat, the passenger seat while you drive around the track and we'll have communication devices. So I can talk to you while we're going at speed in our helmets. And, you know, I will be critiquing or I'll be describing things to think about while you're driving at the track. Obviously I'm not trying to overload you with information while you're, piloting this two-ton vehicle at 150 miles an hour, um, but just enough to try to get you around the track both safely and quickly. And one of the things that you see, especially with new drivers, is, you know, they'll go in for a corner, uh, they'll turn into a corner, and corners tend to have curbing along the edge of them, and they will miss the curbing, which is the apex of the corner, which is the tightest point of the corner. They'll miss it by, I don't know, six inches, let's say, or a foot, Right. And you say, oh, that's not a lot. That's just a foot, right? That's like the width of a tire. Yeah, that that's a tenth of a second or two tenths of a second, depending on the corner, right? So you'll tell them, you're like, you missed that by a foot or you missed it by six inches. And they'll say, well, isn't that good enough? And I'll say, no, we want you to be on it. We want you to be within a millimeter of it every single time. And the only way you get to that point is your speed has to be you know, you have to hit it 44 miles an hour every single time. And you've got to break at a certain point going into that corner to get to 44 miles an hour. And you've got to turn in at the right point. And all these little things go together. Um, and you have to do that lap 
after lap, after lap, after lap, after lap. It sounds like insanity. I mean, why would somebody want to do that? What's the pleasure in saying, oh my God, I have to get within a few inches each time and I'm going to do this lap after lap. I mean, what's the fun in that? It's, it's, it's that strive for perfection, um, you know, because I can probably count on one hand laps that I've done to where I think I did it perfect at least to my ability. And even then I probably could have done something a little bit better. Um, it's you, there's just, the perfect lap is, is that idea. It's just like this floating idea out in the ether, you know, get that perfect lap together. Cause it just doesn't happen. You'll always mess up here. You'll miss it by something by an inch here or, you know, a few inches there and it just won't quite be perfect. Um, but it's that strive to, to get that perfection. Uh, and when you get close, there's nothing quite like it. Um, to toot my own horn a little bit, I just finished, uh, we did a race in December at COTA, the Circuit of the Americas, with an endurance league. And in my, I was driving a GT4 Club Sport, which is a Porsche Cayman, basically, race car. And we were on grid and we started the race. We were in P30. And these are all cars in our class. There's 40 cars in our class for some reason. It's a crazy amount of cars. started off in 30th place. Out of 30th place. place. There were 29 cars between me and the guy in the front, right? Uh, and I drove for an hour and a half on my first stint and I drove the car to eighth place over that hour and a half. Um, and it's because I didn't qualify the car. We were way back where we shouldn't have been. We should have been much higher. Um, but all the cars were in the same class. We were all the same speed car. Uh, it wasn't like I was sandbagging and passing slower cars. Um, but it's that idea that, you know, even during that drive, I know I could have gone a little bit quicker in certain spots and just try to get it a little better, try to get a little better. And then when you start adding traffic and other cars into the mix, you can't have that perfect lap. So how do you go around and manage traffic as best as you can to get as fast as you can? And it's just everything's, every lap's a little bit different when you start racing wheel to wheel. Uh, and I guess that's what, that's why I enjoy it so much. <laughs> when I'm out there, I'm not thinking about anything else. Um, and uh, it's just, it's magical. An hour and a half goes by like that. It, you know, I, I preach, uh, my listeners will know, I preach quite often that it's really important that you find a way to, in your life, to clear your mind and to do activities outside of the practice of law, outside of the work you do, because it's stressful. And uh, what makes uh, us good lawyers is that our minds are often running quite a bit and focusing on the issues that we're faced with day and night, uh, or at least nighttime thinking about the issues that you're going to be dealing with the next day. And that it's important to do exercise, to work out, to find activities that you can clear your mind uh, and, and escape your mind for a few moments. And just as you said, I find that doing that with the with driving uh, high performance vehicles in a sim situation or in real life, you're so focused on it that it's just, it's so mind clearing. And it's not that easy to get your mind clear. Uh, I practice meditation and yoga. And even through that, you know, I'll practice a whole yoga session for an hour. And the whole time I'm thinking about the work I got to do when I'm done and I can't clear my mind in any way, like with car racing. So yeah. I wonder if it's people like us maybe are obsessive uh, and we obsess on things in general, which may make us good in our day job, uh, but yeah. that could be a curse, but it may make us want to get that better lap each time and time again and clear our mind. So maybe that's sort of the, trying to get to the genetic makeup of well, our kind. Here. I think you're, I think you're, yeah, I think you're hitting on something um, pretty profound. The idea that you know, you hear always hear you, you go to work, you do your work, you do everything. But when you come home, you need some time to switch off, right? 
Um, but I find that if you just switch off whatever it is, that your mind's not working and not thinking of anything. It's trying not to think of anything. But by thinking of nothing, everything from the day starts to creep in. Oh, what about that, you know, that meeting I've got tomorrow? Or, you know, what about that case brief I need to write? Stuff like that, right? In my opinion, maybe it's better if when you switch off, you're not switching off in that sense. You're just switching off the idea of work, what you do for your your day job. Um, So like getting in the simulator or racing, that is a very mentally strenuous activity. This is not, you know, sitting by the pool and reading a magazine type of stuff. This is hyper-focused um, mental activity that you're conducting yourself in and, and, and physical too, because you've actually got to make movements to go along with what your brain is thinking. But I think that activity with the brain in, or doesn't allow for the day's worries and concerns to come in because you're focused on something else. So while you're supposed to be switching off, you're just switching off your daytime stresses and substituting them with something that you find fun, something you find enjoyable, something that's engaging mentally so that you're occupied so you're not thinking about that other stuff. Other people may, you know, do it with crocheting or they may do it by going play golf or, you know, racquetball or something, uh, like you said, working out. But even with some of the activities like working out, you know, when you have a lot of downtime, there's a lot of opportunities for things to creep in. So I think filling that time with something that keeps you hyper engaged um, prevents you from having to, to, to revisit all those worries during the year. Um, so for people that may have trouble, you know, decompressing at the end of the day, maybe that's some advice that can give is find something that's engaging woodworking. I don't know. Uh, you know, some, something that, you know, besides sitting down watching TV or something at the end of the day, uh, to try to decompress. Um, because for me, when I get home, well, I've always been home for the pandemic, but when I'm done, you can see right behind me, there's my sim, right? So I will turn around and I will just hop into that and I'll drive for an hour. And I can't think of anything else because I'm in that. Um, and it's really refreshing. And I'll even do it at lunchtime because <laughs> it's right there. Type of thing. Yeah, that's one of the benefits of remote working and efficiency. Oh yeah, I love it. And then you drive. Um, what's, do you... Do you have concerns about safety? You know, people uh, on my Instagram, uh, the mentor, uh, at the mentor ESQ, uh, most of the stuff I post is law related, but every once in a while I'll throw in a picture of me with my helmet on at a (laughs) driving event or a Skip Barber program or BMW program. And people think, wow, you crazy? You could really get hurt. You know, are you going fast? And, um, and, you know, I'm a personal injury lawyer. I see people get hurt in all kinds of ways. And they're usually getting hurt crossing the street from a taxi. Uh, and I don't hear too much about people actually getting hurt going 125 miles an hour on a racetrack. Um, can you give me your thoughts on safety in racing? It's always a concern. Um, you know, this is not, we're moving at high rates of speed that if an impact were to happen, the human body is not designed to survive type of thing right and advances in safety with race cars and such have advanced in such a way that they try to make it so things are more survivable right but it's always a risk and it's not only that it's you know i can make a mistake behind the wheel but there could also be a mechanical failure behind the car there's a lot of people that keep these things running there's teams that are in that are pit crews that are you know doing the brakes every night in between races and, and making sure the car is in general good shape 
in order to run. And, you know, it just takes one guy who had a bad day to not torque a bolt down. Right. And it backs out on the middle of the track and you could be driving around doing everything right. And then all of a sudden you hit the brakes and there's no brakes. Right. And that's not something you did. That's something else somebody caused. And, um, it's always a concern. Right. But the way I look at it is I'm, I'm more concerned about getting in a wreck on the freeway than in a race car. At least if I get in a wreck in a race car, I've got a helmet on, I've got my head and neck restraint on, I'm in a harness, I've got a metal cage surrounded to its design to be impenetrable in the event of an impact. Um, I've got a lot of safety equipment around me and everybody that's driving around me as well is doing the same thing. We're all going the same direction. They're all race car drivers. We all know how this works and we all want to come home at the end of the day versus when you're driving on the highway at 70 miles an hour, you know, you got people texting on their phones and looking at things and they're not worried about anything. Um, so for me, I'm more concerned about driving on the freeway than driving in the race car. And, you know, knock on wood, I haven't, in the four years that I've been doing this in real life, I haven't had one incident. Um, you know, it, it happens sometimes. I've known some guys that have gotten really hurt through incidents but usually when you go back and you look at what caused the incident and what happened, it was people going, taking risks that were just unnecessary for the circumstances. Um, you know, uh, getting, getting in over their head and thinking that they, they ran out of talent is what they call it. You know, and not all of it, it's kind of a mean way to say it, but you know, if somebody, if it, if it was two cars going into a corner, if somebody would have just realized, you know, there's five hours left in the race, you know, uh, there's not a big team watching in the tower. And if you, you get past that car going into that corner, all of a sudden they're going to give you some sort of contract to drive with them next year or something like that. You know, people take it in perspective and realize the risks that you should be taking um, relative to what is at stake. Then, you know, a lot of incidents wouldn't happen. So, you know, like I said, I've, I've been thankful that nothing has happened, but frankly, when I put that helmet on and I get in that car, any concerns I had, they're out the window. When I'm sitting there waiting for the, my guy, and pit row to say, go, go, go. That's yeah. it. I hit go and all the concerns are gone. I'm not thinking about getting hurt. I'm not thinking about how much this would cost if I put this thing in the wall. I'm not thinking of any of that. I'm just thinking about driving at that point. Cause it's just like we said, it's that idea that because my mind is hyper-focused, I can't have other thoughts enter into it because there's no room. So anyway. Chris, I've been a Porsche fan for, you know, 30 plus years, been a Porsche club member for probably over 20 years now, and um, a member of the club and meeting a lot of others, many people, multiple Porsches. There's a, there's a world out there of Porsche fanatics. And when people ask me, I say, have you ever driven a Porsche? Um, and so I'm like, no, what's the big deal? And um, can you, having, you know, driving it, all different types of Porsches for pleasure in race cars. Can you give us an idea of what it is, why Porsches are special? Yeah. Um, what's special about them is it feels like it's a, it feels like it's a connection to you, right? Um, you're, you know, when you're driving your car down the highway uh, and if you just have a regular commuter car or an SUV or something like that, you know, it's a conveyance. It's a from point A to point B. But at the end of the day, you turn the key, you press the gas pedal, you steer the car, and you're there and you didn't think anything of it. When you drive a Porsche um, and other performance cars as well, but Porsche specifically seems to get a bang on, uh, you're, it's an event. You're part of the act of driving. 
Um, you're not doing it to get from point A to point B. That's just uh, that, 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 that's just a, a something that happens by driving, right? But the point is the act of driving. Um, so if you have a six speed, which you should, I, don't, I, hope, I hope your car is a six speed. <laughs> if it's not, it's okay. Trust me. My race car is not a six speed either. It's a paddle shit. Um, but if you have a, a gearbox and you're rowing your gears, you're, you're actively engaged in doing something that furthers the event of driving. Um, you feel the steering and you feel the road in the steering wheel. You know, when you move your hands to the right or to the left, you feel the car move in each direction. That kind of connection with the machine is that where my love for cars came from, right? You remember, as I said before, a person getting into a mechanical device that makes them capable to do things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. Well, that's exactly what that is with driving. And a Porsche allows you to do that. It gives you that sense of, you know, I shouldn't be able to do this, but because of the machinery that's around me, I can do it. Um, and that ability, you know, there's just nothing quite like going through a corner on a racetrack, of course, uh, <laughs> being a lawyer, right? On a racetrack in a closed environment. Yes. Uh, with a professional driver. Um, but it, it, there's nothing quite like going around a corner uh, and going over a Jeep, uh, having a G-force, you know, the force of gravity pushing you out to the side of the car and feeling the tires scrambling for grip, you know, feeling the edge of grip, feeling what the car does uh, when it's on its edge. If it's plowed, what we call understeer, you know, trying to go forward when you have the steering wheel or the back end starting to rotate at the limit. It's just something about having a car at the limit is just, it's amazing. <laughs> I don't know. I hope I, I may sound like a, a Porsche fanboy at this point, but. Uh, no, you know, but, you know, uh, it is what it is. And it's really funny. You know, there's no, you know, I, I laugh at myself because I find myself sometimes out driving and I just start smiling. <laughs> like, well, I'm just having so much fun just driving around in these country roads and it's, and Porsches do that. They make you smile. They, they, they are exciting and it, it gives you a reason to run errands. <laughs> That's it, it, well, it, the way I look at it is, and it happened in Philadelphia a lot more because in Houston, all the roads are straight. But if you ever go into your car and your destination is your garage. So you're leaving from your garage and your destination is your garage. Then you're driving for the sake of driving, not driving to go anywhere. Right. And there were so many times when I was in Philadelphia where I'd go down and get in my car. And my only destination was to put it right back in its parking space, but it would take me two hours to get there. Right. Uh, so um, that is, if, if you have that attitude or if that you ever do that with your car, I would look at a Porsche. Um, they're, you can get a first generation Porsche Boxster or first first generation Porsche Cayman for cheaper in a lot of cases than a normal regular sports car. I mean, we're talking I, Porsche Caymans at this point, which I think is the deal of the century, like a 2006 to a 2009 with perfectly reasonable amount of mileage in the mid to low 20s. Uh, that's that is just the, one of the best deals out there and i i used to own one um and they're fantastic cars and you know so it, it's it's just especially for you know a lawyer that's trying to treat themselves and and have that activity that is letting them um unwind uh and you know go out on drives and engage their mind but just not with a, a legal activity um or well it's legal but not a not a law activity um 
yeah, get yourself a sports car and drive around. It's it's a cliche, right? But hey, there's a reason it's a cliche. It's because it's fun to do. It's fun. It's mind clearing. And I agree. I encourage uh, anyone that has the opportunity to get involved with any car club, uh, meet other people that enjoy their cars, uh, where you can go and you can learn how to drive a car properly, a sports car on a track in a safe environment with an instructor um, like Chris in the passenger seat. I've done it. I do it as much as I can. And it's just it's it's amazing what you can learn uh, and get pleasure out of it and how you can clear your mind. And for, well, one other thing I was going to add real quick. Um, And for those of your viewers or anybody that's listening, if you have kids and your kids are coming up and they're about to start driving, they're about to turn 16 um, or they have turned 16 or they're, you know, later years of high school, but they just started driving. There's nothing better than to get them into a car control school. We have them in our Porsche club. I'm sure up there in New York, you guys have them. My parents did it for me when I was younger. Um, but get them into on a skip pad, basically teach them what it's like to have a car at the limit of grip. So when it does happen on the street, they're not scared and they have already experienced it before. Because the last thing you want is to experience that for the first time when it actually matters. Um, limit you, of know, grip, you mean the tail spinning around? Yeah. Spinning you know, off. somebody just pulled out in front of you from a ran a stop sign and pulled out in front of you. What do you do? You can't stop in time before you hit them. So you're going to jerk the wheel. What's the car? How's the car going to react? Well, the, these team driving events and um, schools like that put you in that situation in a safe, controlled environment. So you know what the car feels like before you actually have to do it. So. So, Chris, normally I like to wrap up my interviews uh, by asking the lawyers who join me on the program uh, to define uh, what they believe uh, it means to be a great lawyer. So I'm going to ask you to do that as question number one. Uh, But because we're talking about cars and because you're a lawyer and a car driver and a race car driver and a fellow Porsche Porsche fanatic, I'm going to ask you is the two part or the second part is going to be in your opinion, what makes a great uh, sports car driver? Okay. So you can take them in any order you want. All right. So I will take the sports car one first because that one's easier. What makes a good sports car driver? Um, I'm going to tackle it strictly from a competitive standpoint, so like racing. Um, but that is driving within yourself, right? Um, and what I mean by that is you understand that you're not – Michael Schumacher, or you're not Lewis Hamilton, right? You know that you're not going to go out there and set the lap record. Instead, you know what your abilities are and you make sure that you maximize your abilities, but you don't exceed them. Because when you start to exceed them is when you start to drive out of control and that's when mistakes are made. And you, a best case scenario, you just end up going slower. A worst case scenario, you end up wrecking. Um, So that's what I would say is probably the driving within yourself. Um, and then what makes the, uh, repeat the first one again, because you said it in this particular way. How, how do you define a great lawyer? Uh, how do I define a great lawyer? I want to say a great lawyer. I'm going to take it from my perspective, um, because I think it's different for trial lawyers and for transactional lawyers. But for me, a great lawyer is one that is taking a practical approach. So practicality, um, All day long, I can argue why I would want to limit my liability on a given contract. And I need it to to be that way, right? It has to be that way. My company's mandated that my limitation of liability is X amount per contract. And I can't go a cent over it. 
well, if the equipment I'm selling in this instance has not failed in the past 50 years, or we've never had a failure or type of that, and the chance of failure is so remote, am I really going to potentially throw away a contract because of that requirement? I don't know. And the ability for me to be able to be practical, realize all the context of the situation where I would want to achieve a certain goal and a, a certain argument, um, but maybe in the context it's not necessary, that ability to be able to pull back and, and fight on a, to live to fight another day, so to speak, uh, and choose my battles, I think that that makes, at least for me, a transactional lawyer a good lawyer. That's a great definition, and it shows your wisdom. Uh, I believe wisdom, I, I don't think you get it in your 30s, so you're pretty wise for a young man. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I've been I've been sort of discovering wisdom as I've been getting older and it's sort of looking back and sort of seeing things that you can be practical about. And I think uh, your definition of a great lawyer, having that sense of practicality, knowing what the goal is and not being, you know, so uh, blinded to one direction, but thinking outside the box, being smart, making sense is so important uh, to have uh, as a quality to be a great lawyer. So I thank you for bringing that in as a definition. And I, I learned it from, and, and I think it probably goes along more aligned with your podcast on a usual basis, but I had a great mentor um, and I studied and I, under his tutelage, he kind of showed me the ropes of what we do and how we do it and how he handles things. And that was one of the things that I picked up really quickly was his practicality, you know, where, you know, his mandate said X, but he realized that in order to get a deal, he needed to do Y uh, and that he wasn't risking X by going after Y. And um, it really rubbed off on me. And so that's something that's really important is that mentorship. You know, uh, I know a lot of younger folks and myself included, maybe you as well. Um, when we were younger, we were gung ho. We knew everything and we we're going to go out there and we we're going to change the world. Right. Uh, no one can tell me otherwise. Um, but be able to swallow that pride, to learn from someone that's already walked the walk already, you can put yourself so much further down the road uh, than if you tried to walk it all on your own. It's great counsel. And it's it's the reason that I do now what I do as being a mentor, having the mentor podcast, lecturing uh, on topics for other lawyers. Uh, it's important that we as attorneys uh, we're part of a community. It's important that we mentor each other. We can always learn from each other. It's important no matter how long you've been doing something that you ask questions. Uh, you have been a mentor to me in my sim racing rookie career. You've been kind enough to teach me. And just what you say, learn to drive within your limits. Go slow to go fast as I'm learning a lot of uh, the importance of that, which means you slow down through those turns and that'll help you drive the laps a lot faster than trying to skid your way through. Um, so I thank you for your mentorship. Uh, and I know I'm going to keep tapping into it as I uh, try and improve and, 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 and follow in your fumes. Uh, on <laughs> oh, absolutely. You, we, you will have you beaten me sooner or later. Trust <laughs> me. <laughs> Chris is a keep very, going. very fast driver, folks. He is on the pro level and uh, he's lightning fast. Uh, he's a number one in these uh, races. But Chris, thanks for joining me. It was so much fun to be able to talk cars, talk car cars and try and tie in the law a little bit. I know we want a little light on the law, so I hope you all will uh, forgive us that. Uh, but it is fun to talk cars uh, and, uh, and to share the enjoyment uh, that we get from them. And you certainly express that and you're giving a lot back to the uh, car community in your lectures that you give and explaining things. And so I appreciate that. Very Not much. a problem. And I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on, Andrew, and uh, hope to maybe do it again sometime soon. 
That would be fantastic. And thank you everybody for joining us on this episode of Racing Cars uh, and, and the Mentor Podcast. Uh, and uh, we hope to see you on the next episode. As always, I'd really appreciate it if you'd share this episode with those uh, classmates, colleagues, and friends who you think would enjoy it. You know someone that likes to drive cars, definitely share this episode with them. And I'm always looking to expand uh, my circle of colleagues and lawyers that I can network with. We can refer cases back and forth. We can workshop things. And uh, today I'll add in fellow car fans. Reach out to me if you want to talk about sim racing and uh, I'll be happy to talk about that. And I can put you in touch with uh, Chris. I'll put some contact info out there. If you want to speak to him about the law or about cars or about Porsches or racing, uh, I'm sure Chris would be open to hearing that as well. Absolutely. All right. Thank you and uh, see you all soon.